This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. Dustin Flannery, thank you very much for making the time to be with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me today. You are uh, an assistant professor and attending neonatologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. You're a clinical researcher studying perinatal infectious disease. You are very active on Twitter. You're a great follow if people are still coming on the platform. Um, and it's and it's uh, it's great to uh, finally have you on the podcast. I met you for the first time at ESPR not too long ago. Yes, that's right. Up here in Philadelphia. It was great. That's Finally right. meet in person, all my Twitter friends. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. It felt it felt always it's always very weird. I saw you, you we saw each other and it's like we, we know each other, but it's yet we still haven't met we're meeting for the first time. So it was it was an interesting experience. But uh I can attest that uh you are just as nice as you are on Twitter. So uh, people should not be afraid to approach you when they see you at conferences. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I, uh, <laughs> Dustin, you, you're here to discuss with us uh, a very important article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine not too long ago. The article is called Bivalent Prefusion F Vaccine in Pregnancy to Prevent RSV Illness in Infants. And there's a lot of talk about RSV vaccines these days. Um, and I guess usually we'd like to start off by asking our, our guests to maybe summarize the paper. But I think we were talking off air about this. There, there's This paper comes after a long history when it comes to uh, RSV vaccination. Do, do you want to go over that a little bit before we dive into the paper? Yes, it's, it's so important to understand the context of this study and related studies uh, with the history of RSV vaccine. But I have to preface this conversation um, in full disclosure. Um, I am a neonatologist. I do study um, infectious diseases in neonates, but I'm not an infectious diseases expert. I'm not an immunologist, a vaccinologist, a virologist, an obstetrician, or a trialist. So um, I'm, I'm very happy to weigh in on this study, which I think is super, super exciting. Um, but I, I definitely need to give that disclosure. We appreciate that. Uh, Dustin, of course. But with that being said, uh, the floor is yours. All right, Ben. So we know that RSV infects nearly all children uh, before they turn two years old. It's a leading cause of pediatric hospitalization and pediatric deaths worldwide. Um, and each year, more than 3 million children get admitted to the hospital for RSV. And uh, more than like 100,000 die from severe RSV infection. And you know, this is a neonatal-based podcast. We know that children born preterm, those with certain health conditions, they're at the highest risk for severe RSV infection. Um, and from a financial standpoint, RSV in the U.S. alone costs more than $1 billion per year. And so clearly, this is important. A vaccine that could prevent or minimize severe infection from RSV would have a really serious impact. And we've all done pediatric residency, so we all remember when RSV season begins, and you're in the ER, you're on the floor like this, and or in the PICU. This is, this is, this is a very scary time for us because RSV is is. I mean, we have symptomatic management, and it's it's not always successful. So I think I think I can speak on behalf of all of us when we say we remember those days of uh, RSV season in the pediatric floor, and 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 these. These were not fun. Yes, absolutely. And, and even in, in some uh, neonatal intensive care units, including my own, the hospital becomes so overburdened with RSV and other respiratory infections uh, during the cold season that we actually admit many of these babies to the NICU. 
especially the, the wow. former preterms with apnea or who require mechanical ventilation. Um, mm. But let's talk a little bit about this really disheartening history of RSV vaccines. So RSV was discovered in the 50s and pretty soon after a vaccine uh, using an, an activated form of the virus was developed and tested in multiple trials. Um, but really concerning, these trials showed that young children who were naive to the virus, meaning they had not been infected before, um, and who received the vaccine, they really had an enhanced response when exposed to the virus um, instead of a decreased response. They had a much higher risk of hospitalization related to RSV, and tragically, two toddlers in these studies died. Um, and so this really halted RSV vaccine development for quite some time. So you're saying that they, they, they got that initial vaccine back in the mm -hmm. 60s, and they actually did worse uh, when, when infected with RSV. Correct. Um, and one, one wow. article I read cited that 80% uh, of children who got the vaccine and had never been exposed to RSV required hospitalization when they received or when they were exposed to the virus. So, uh, you know, th this is a really scary part of vaccine science. Um, you know, you, you, you create vaccines to prevent serious infection and, and bad outcomes. Um, but when the vaccine actually is contributes to worse outcomes, that's just really scary for the field. But fast forward a few decades, scientists now have a much better understanding of this virus's structure. Specifically, this pre-fusion form of the F protein uh, has become a target for more modern vaccines. Multiple RSV vaccines targeting this pre-fusion F protein are in development, including the bivalent Pfizer vaccine in this uh, Campman trial we're going to discuss today. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'd like to start with a PICO question. Uh, when I think about randomized trials, you know, I love randomized trials because on paper, they seem so straightforward. They ask specific questions, specific exposure, specific outcomes, and the statistics aren't so complicated, unlike some of these observational studies we do where we try to adjust or account for all of the things uh, that we can't replicate in a trial. Um, mm -hmm. And so this, this trial is fairly straightforward. Of course, you know, every study is a bit complicated. I was uh, browsing through the supplement. It's over 400 pages long, uh, the protocol and the supplement. So um, we'll just kind of get right into the PICO question here. So they asked in pregnant women at 24 to 36 weeks gestation, does a single intramuscular injection of a bivalent, and by bivalent, they mean RSV A and B, uh, pre-fusion F protein-based vaccine compared with a placebo decrease the risk of medically attended severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract illness. By medically attended, they just mean you required um, interaction with uh, the medical field or a medical provider, and they have pretty clear definitions of what they mean by severe RSV uh, based on symptoms and respiratory um, support requirement, as well as admission to the ICU. Uh, they also, um, as a second primary outcome, asked the same question, but for medically attended, non-severe uh, RSV-associated lower respiratory tract illness. Um, this gets a little bit confusing when you're just reading the article quickly because they don't say uh, severe or non-severe. They just say severe and then uh, just medically attended. And 
Yeah, you have to keep track of when it says severe. Yes, or not. that's true. Uh, I got I got myself uh, tracking back several times. So like, wait, what were they talking about? Oh, yes. severe. Fine. I almost yeah, wish they just it. labeled it as severe and non-severe because it can get a little wordy and confusing. Um, right. And so this is an interim analysis. This was a phase three double-blind one-to-one allocation randomized placebo-controlled trial. And this was done in 18 countries over four RSV seasons in two hemispheres. Um, And they included 73, 92 healthy pregnant women, again, who were between 24 and 36 weeks gestation at the time of injection with vaccine or placebo. Uh They looked at two... um, They looked at two primary outcomes. Again, medically attended severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract illness, and then medically attended non-severe lower respiratory tract illness. Um, And this interim analysis uh, reports on these outcomes at 90 and 180 days after birth, so so three and six months. And for these endpoints, uh, they used their sample size calculations um, to come up with uh, a lower boundary of the confidence interval greater than 20% as their definition of meeting success criterion for vaccine efficacy. Um, they also had um, a, a couple secondary and exploratory outcomes, which I, I won't get into detail here. Um, but importantly, they also included safety data, uh, adverse event data for both the pregnant women and the infants. So what were the results? Um, The maternal and infant demographics and clinical characteristics were pretty similar between the two groups. Uh, About half of the women uh, were enrolled in the United States. Uh, That was uh, the country with the the highest enrollment. South Africa was number two. Median maternal age, 29 years. And the median gestation at injection was 31 weeks and three days, which is important. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, more later. Um, yeah. Two-thirds of the, the women were white, and nearly all, uh, 94%, were born at term gestation and had a five-minute APGAR score uh, greater than six. So again, this is an interim analysis, and the reason is because the Data Monitoring Committee recommended early trial termination because the success criterion was met for the first primary outcome, medically attended severe RSV-associated infection at both 90 and 180 days after birth. For the other primary outcome, the non-severe, the statistical success criterion was not met. Um, There were similar incidences of maternal adverse events and infant adverse events in both groups. Both were low. Um, Importantly, one one safety endpoint uh, that gets highlighted a lot in in the lay media is that uh, 5% per 6% of births in the vaccine group uh, we're at less than 37 weeks compared to 4.7% in the placebo group. So this is about a 1% difference, not statistically significant. Um, and we'll talk about why that is still of some concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they concluded that the results of this trial, which importantly was sponsored by Pfizer, uh, suggest that maternal RSV vaccine could really be a game changer in prevention of severe pediatric RSV disease across the globe. Um, And just back in May, a a U.S. FDA advisory committee voted in support of approval for Pfizer's uh, pre-F RSV vaccine during pregnancy in order to provide infant protection. And the vaccine is currently under review by the FDA, and we expect some more information really any day now. Mm -hmm. 
thank you for reviewing for reviewing the article. Um, you, you wrote a very nice uh, commentary for the Ibinio team that will be available in uh, Acta Pediatrica. And I am wondering what is your main takeaway from this paper as a as a clinician. Um, I think I think that's that that would be that your input is quite is quite valuable when it comes to that. Sure, I, I think my main takeaway is again related back to the context here. The reality that a maternal RSV vaccine could soon be licensed any day now after more than half a century of research. Uh, this is just really particularly remarkable in context of that really disappointing and tragic RSV vaccine history. Right. What do you think is going to be um, the approach? And I think we're stepping outside of our jurisdiction here when we're talking about the administration of the vaccine. Um, and regarding the timing, considering the efficacy endpoints uh, of the trial, looking at let's say ninety days, one hundred and eighty days, I think right. I think that that would put probably uh, a certain uh, apply certain window as to when the the pregnant individuals could be could be potentially vaccinated. Yes, absolutely. Uh, really, an important issue to resolve is the optimal timing of vaccine administration during pregnancy. We very well know that infants born at the lowest gestational ages are at the highest risk for severe RSV disease. And so they may not benefit from maternal vaccine if it's, you know, given routinely late in the third trimester. Um, and so even in this trial, uh, the vaccine was administered between 24 and 36 weeks, uh, but it takes about two weeks to really develop a uh, robust immune response in the pregnant woman Um, and then we know that uh, really the uh, the highest antibody transfer occurs during the third trimester. Um, so it's a little bit unclear how this vaccine could benefit babies born at lower gestations. I have a suspicion that it's probably going to start later in pregnancy, and that our preemies are probably going to suffer from from our just from our lack of knowledge at this point, and eventually it will as usual trickle back down to the preemie so as we as we understand it better and it's in its sort of a phase 4 post marketing type of situation in term and and late preterm then we'll we'll try to see how could that affect our our preemies and what are the effects in terms of immunity over over how long and and i think what i'm trying to say i guess is that we we most likely will continue to see data being published on this subject specifically yes i, I think you're absolutely right and again the median Uh, gestational age at uh, injection was about 31 weeks. And so again, uh, that would not benefit our youngest babies born, you know, uh, much earlier. Um, and so I think you're right that, uh, that it's possible that if the vaccine's given a little bit later, it will still have a huge impact because since most babies are born term, uh, most babies who develop RSV infection are in fact term. And so there will still, I think, be a huge benefit, but we'll need to think more carefully and, and do more research to figure out how we can benefit our tiniest babies. You mentioned something in your review of the article that um, obviously I think is going to be, sadly enough, will probably be a, a huge point of discussion, which is the slightly increased rate of premature delivery uh, in the vaccine group. And, and if people are interested and, and the... Um, The paper will be available. Uh, the link to the paper will be available on the on the website. But you can look at Figure Four, and I think it's in uh, it's in it's in it's uh, 
rectangle B on the on figure four, where you can clearly see that it's not statistically significant, but obviously it's always the same. It's a bit of noise, and and it's not clear whether this there's a signal there. Um, do you think that component of the results of this study will dominate the public discussion, or do you feel reassured based on the data that that there's most likely nothing there. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question. And it, it is something that the public has sort of latched onto, as well as some of the experts. If you read the testimony uh, and the articles um, about the FDA advisor discussions, uh, there, there are some, some vaccinologists and infectious disease experts uh, who are very worried about this. And I think it stems from the fact that there was a similar signal regarding an increased incidence of preterm births reported in the GlaxoSmithKline RSV vaccine trial back in 2022. Uh, but a couple of things I want to mention here. First, uh, the proportions of preterm birth in both arms of the current study were much lower than the overall U.S. preterm birth rate. And so we looked at CDC uh, statistics data from 2021, again, uh, which overlap with this study, and the preterm birth rate in the U.S. is 10.5%. And so when you look at the preterm birth rates in the two groups, 5.6% uh, in the vaccine group, 4.7% in the, the placebo group. So both uh, significantly lower than, than the national rate. And so, you know, what do we make about this 1% difference? Um, I, I personally don't feel too alarmed about this, uh, but I also don't think it can be ignored, especially in light at the GlaxoSmithKline uh, earlier data. But something else that needs to be discussed is an important limitation of this study. They only included healthy pregnant women. And so pregnant women at high risk were excluded. There's a long laundry list of what conditions that includes, uh, but it definitely includes women who are most likely to deliver preterm. And so how do we interpret these results in context of that? I think it's going to circle back to our initial question, which is as we're figuring out when to give the vaccine, we'll probably solve that problem by just giving it maybe at 34 weeks and and really making the risk of, of preterm delivery less of an issue when you're delivering closer to 35, 36, rather than if you're delivering at 32 weeks when it's still quite significant, despite, especially considering US and other developed countries, very good outcomes for these babies. So I think it'll be interesting to see how... Um, the inclusion criteria for for or the recommended inclusion criteria for the vaccines are are being laid out, and also um, how does the timing uh, could potentially resolve uh, resolve this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and just two more comments about the timing issue. One is just because a vaccine becomes available during pregnancy and and is approved and, and found to be safe doesn't mean pregnant women will accept it. Um, and you know, I, I think we have a higher acceptance of vaccine during pregnancies ever since the H1N1 um, epidemic and obviously the COVID-19, uh, where pregnant women are becoming more willing to accept vaccination during pregnancy, but rates for both of those vaccines are still quite low. Um, also, uh, we need to understand the dynamics of interactions with other vaccines administered during pregnancy. Um, a recent study suggested that co-administration of the pre-F RSV vaccine, as well as Tdap, led to a reduction in the pertussis component antibody response uh, when uh, compared to just Tdap alone. And, and so these are things that need to be sorted out as we develop optimal maternal vaccination strategies. 
going a bit further uh, beyond this paper, I think what's also going to be interesting is um, are going to be the recommendations when it comes to this to this specific vaccine in light of the recent um, FDA approval of the nirsevimab for young infants. And I think now that we have multiple prongs of approaching and preventing RSV, how will these work in tandem or not? Um, I'm 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 going to be curious to uh, to see what happens. Do you have any thoughts as to what do you, what what the future holds in terms of our approach to preventing RSV? Whether it will be more towards the maternal side with the paper that we just discussed, or maybe just trying to vaccinate infants earlier on to prevent severe disease in the first couple uh, of months of life? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question. And I'm excited to see how this pans out over the next decade. You know, after uh, many years of, of only having one potential uh, strategy, which is uh, the Synergis, which uh, is expensive, which really limits the patient population who uh, can uh, receive it. It also requires monthly injections. We know that compliance is quite low. And so uh, really, it's, it's sort of fascinating that all in the same time period, uh, now we're, we're starting to have additional strategies. And so like you mentioned, the FDA just approved uh, Bayfortis or Nercivimab, Alip, uh, for the pre- prevention of RSV in neonates uh, during their first RSV season. And this is just a one-time monoclonal antibody injection. And so really may be advantageous over surfactant. And so uh, clearly now there's a market for RSV prevention. We have different uh, prongs that we can use and it may just uh, need to be an individualized approach. That's right. That's right. Well, it looks like this is going to be a, a, a topic of discussion in the coming weeks and months and years. And uh, we we thank you for coming on the show and to the EBNEO team for publishing this, uh, this great commentary. We'll make it obviously available on the episode page. And uh, they're always available, obviously, on the uh, Acta Pietrica uh, website. Dustin, thank you for making the time to be with us today. Best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. I have to give a shout out to Alvaro Proano, who is one of our second year fellows uh, here at CHOP. Uh, he's on service and post call today, so was unable to join us. But really, uh, he wrote this review uh, with me and uh, really helped me understand some of the intricacies uh, that were buried in the supplement. Um, so thank you to him as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast, or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. 
Thank you.